Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. We like the narrative of people going back and being relentless for success, and that's great, and it plays its part, but we shouldn't underestimate the value of pausing to acknowledge our achievements and then decide if we want to go again. I remember when my son was born and somebody saying to me, how would you feel if somebody spoke to your son in the way that you speak to yourself? thought I'd hate the idea that somebody would speak in such a cruel, uncaring manner to him. Opinion is the lowest form of knowledge because it doesn't require any real thought. Empathy, he argues, is the highest form of knowledge because it requires you to suspend your own ego, to step Mm -hmm. into somebody's world and see it from their perspective. Welcome to the Elevate podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. I am so very excited to introduce you to today's guest. In our household, he is actually a hero. And when he agreed to join me on the Elevate podcast, I was beyond honoured. An international speaker and best-selling author who combines his practical and academic background within sport, organisational development and change psychology, to help organizations and teams to create a high-performing culture. Our guest today is the author of eight business books, which have been translated into 10 languages. He was appointed as a professor of organizational psychology and change for Manchester Metropolitan University in 2010. Many of you may already know him from his tremendous work as the co-host of the hugely popular High Performance Podcast, an acclaimed series of interviews with elite performers from business, sport and the arts, exploring the psychology behind sustained high performance. And he himself has served as a member of the coaching team for England Rugby League, the Scotland Rugby Union, along with a wide range of other international and national sporting teams. His innovative and exciting approach has been praised by notable and aspirational folks such as Sir Richard Branson, Muhammad Ali, Sir Roger Bannister, Tiger Woods, Johnny Wilkinson and Sir Alex Ferguson, to name a few. So without further ado, I welcome our guest, the legend, the professor, the man who enlightens so many. He is, of course, the excellent Damien Hughes. Hello, Professor, and a very, very warm welcome to you. Thank you so much for coming on to the Elevate podcast. Thanks for having me on, Ramita. It's a real treat to, to finally get to chat with you. Yeah, this has been something we've been excited for, I, at least in my household. We are all such a big fan of yours. So this is an extra big treat for me, particularly. I wanted to know how you're keeping and how things are going with your new book launch. Everything that's happening for you is so exciting. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I've uh, been really um, quite busy, to be honest. Um, and and uh, before lockdown started, I'd, um, I I signed up to co-host a podcast series called the High Performance Podcast. Um, so we launched that uh, literally at the start of the pandemic uh, in the UK in March. And we've uh, got a book coming out. We've done about 75, 80 interviews now. Uh, we're just starting Series 6 in a couple of weeks and we have a book coming out at the end of the year relating to some of the key themes that, we, that, that we've sort of distilled from these interviews. They're the absolutely most amazing interviews. If you haven't already subscribed to and downloaded any of these incredible podcast episodes, you really ought to because you're in for such a treat. There's so much knowledge and inspiration in every single guest. And I didn't think, because I'm not the biggest sports fan, that it would be something that I would want to listen to. But my goodness, there's something in there for everybody, whether you're a sports fan or not. Would you not agree? Oh, well, thank you. I think, yeah, that the people can interpret that say we have a sport a sports star on mm-hmm. people go oh, i don't like sport but the point is we're speaking about people that just happen to work in the industry 
Mm. Like we've had uh, ballet dancers on, but we're talking to people that just work in ballet, people that work in business. And I think the common thread behind all of it is we're talking to people, regardless of their industry, as people, there's some common challenges we all face about, you know, dealing with negativity, uh, coping with failure, uh, Mm. surrounding ourselves with people that lift us to be better than we are. And what our guests are incredibly generous at sharing with us are some of the techniques and the lessons and the wisdom that they've learned on their Mm. own journey. Yeah, just like I said in my introduction, that all of these themes are so important to all of us at Elevate. This is the work that I do in trying to pick up young girls and lift them so that they feel that they are their best selves. So I can't wait to dive in with you. But before we talk a little bit more about those issues, I'd love to know a little bit more about you and what it was like for you in your own childhood as a young boy, as a young teen, and maybe how you started doing the work or ended up doing the work that you do today. So I grew up in uh, in inner city Manchester, um, which is where I live now. I live in Manchester now. But uh, my background was probably a little bit unusual from the norm, that um, I grew up in a boxing gym. So my dad was a boxing coach. Really? Yeah. So um, <laughs> like, and he'd, he'd founded a boxing gym before I was even born. So literally my earliest memories are, are with growing up within that environment. And... There might be people listening to this that have got sort of a perception of what they think an inner city boxing club's like in terms of being in quite gritty, uh, deprived inner city areas. And where I grew up sort of um, confirms that stereotype in many ways. So um, uh, the area back in the early 2000s was categorised as one of Europe's third poorest districts. And the reason I mentioned that as a start is because it'll give your listeners sort of a sense of the high levels of unemployment or sort of poverty or deprivation that people uh, and social issues that people are struggling with. But the more important reason why I mention it is, is because the boxing gym was almost seen as um, a bit of a sanctuary for a lot of people. Mm. It was regarded as a place where you could go, you could be respected and you could be treated with dignity. A lot of people never came in there to box. They came in maybe to keep fit or be active. But the reality was they were always treated, they were always greeted with a handshake, eye contact. People would know your first name. You would lose mm. respect and a dignity to it. And that's huh. very much what's informed an awful lot of the work that I do now, Ramita, because um, we often talk that when we when we get older, we don't do research. We do me-search where we try to make <laughs> sense of our lives in many ways. And I know that's what, your brilliant podcast does. And I think that's what I uh, understanding how powerful culture could be. So I work with a lot of leaders in sport and business and education, interested in sort of developing cultures where people can flourish and blossom and, and perform at their best. Uh, and that the origins of that come from my own uh, upbringing. It's incredible. So you were inspired by your dad a little bit, I guess. Is he, would you say he was a bit of a hero of yours as well then growing up? Definitely, yeah. I mean, his own story was incredible. And again, it was I feel incredibly privileged that I almost had access to this in my childhood, that he was an illegitimate child born in post-war Manchester, in Catholic post-war Manchester. So that meant that he was always very much a bit of an outsider, that he never knew mm. his father, that he never mm. had anybody to look after him. And I think some people can use that as an excuse in their life to to justify some of their behaviours. He used it as almost a fuel. Part of the boxing club's uh, ethos was about being a father figure to people that were lost uh, and sort of giving people the idea that there is a better way of uh, oh. doing things. I mean, there's a nice story that a couple of years ago, Manchester, my dad's very poorly now. He's got advanced dementia. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, thank you. But a couple of years ago, Manchester Council named a road uh, in the area of the city where we grew up after him. There was a really nice um, fact, I suppose, that uh, on it was a really cold January afternoon when uh, we'd had the unveiling ceremony of the road. And I'd estimate, Ramita, there was about 300 people turned up. And I'm looking around thinking, 80% of the people that were there that day had never set foot in a boxing ring. But they weren't there to talk about the impact he had on in in the sport. They were there to talk about the impact it had on them as people and as parents and as professionals. Mm. Mm. Um, 
and I think that gives you an idea of so I feel incredibly lucky that I grew up around some of that sort that street wisdom I think absolutely incredible and such a nice reminder of how we sometimes think that we by ourselves one individual can't make much of a difference it's too hard to really make a difference if you're just one person but if you look at your dad's story and obviously what you're doing as well in the work that you do one person can have such a big ripple effect and it can you don't even know who you're reaching and when you're reaching it which is so wonderful and and the power behind storytelling and writing I suppose which is sometimes not always obvious yeah, very much. I mean, I think this is, this will be like it. I imagine for you with the uh, with your podcast is like when you put out an episode, or say like we do it on the high performance one, or or when you put out a book, it's weird because you don't like you can never know who's listening yeah. to it and at what yeah. stage of their life or or whether they need it. So so you almost put it out there with the hope that it can help people. And what's yeah. really affirming is when people occasionally come back and tell you that, oh, you know, I listened to this interview that you did and, and that story really resonated with me and things like that. So again, the purpose behind you giving up your time and, and energy to do a podcast like this is because you wouldn't have that ripple effect. You wouldn't be the... Uh, the stone in the pond mm. ripples and that's what I think uh, we have very much in common between us yeah no you're absolutely right and I think some of the things that you say you don't know who needs to hear it when I've definitely heard some of your guests their messages resonating with myself in in many of the things I've done particularly those people that you've had like Susie Ma and immigration culture and people that have done yeah. work in even Rio Ferdinand's story of losing his wife my dad lost our mom and you know there were just so many stories that you just like you said you would know sitting where you were that I was sitting in Singapore literally bawling through these interviews as I, as I listened to them and I think that's that's why when I think what you're in that business are doing and and I think I am as well is we're about helping people elevate is about just just almost letting people stand on the shoulders of others and go what did they learn that you can take away and apply we are better together but that leads me on beautifully to my question on some of these amazing takeaways like I just said to you the stories are empowering and the reflections are so raw some of the guests open up in quite meaningful ways and I listen to them and I think wow that's exactly what I need to do I need to take that on board and I really want to be able to implement exactly what they've done in their life to turn things around for themselves and somehow the interview ends and I might walk away and I might sort of fall back into my old habits and I wonder if you might have any tips or ways that listeners might be able to take some of the learnings from your amazing guests and be able to actually start living that advice wow that's a brilliant (laughs) question Uh, there's a few angles I I think I would respond in that one Ramita I think the first one would be to say is one of the philosophies that I try to adopt uh, whenever I speak to anybody is uh, I've got a quote uh, next to my desk from a guy called Bill Bullard opinion is the lowest form of knowledge because it doesn't require any real thought empathy he argues is the highest form of knowledge because it requires you to suspend your own ego to step Mm. into somebody's world and see it from their perspective when people are talking to you on a podcast don't sit there and have an opinion on or try to battle that opinion of i don't like them or i don't like (laughs) this or i don't agree with them that's fine step into their world and see why did they make that decision how did they come to that? What influenced them? When we do that, I think the learning then, we open ourselves up to take so much more away. Like when we label somebody's good or bad or we don't like them or we do like them, that binary thinking stops us taking the learning from wherever it comes. So the first thing is sort of listen with empathy rather than listen to have an opinion. I think the second thing I would say is that don't, so many people listen and go, oh, I don't do that and I don't do that. Start from the opposite end of the spectrum and go, actually, acknowledge what you do do. Acknowledge what you're good at, that you're doing great. And sometimes listening to these podcasts or these bits of advice is about how do we do one simple thing better? It's not about changing your life or turning things 180. It's small things a little bit better. But I think we can do that when we acknowledge that we're doing great already. Yeah, that's a really... thing is, mm. is thinking ink. So... Don't just listen and walk away because because we have that many influences that are bombarding our senses that a podcast and an interview is just one of those that when we sort of walk away from it without having to write down something or capture 
and the idea somewhere, there's a good chance it gets lost. To summarise an answer to that, then I'd say, first, listen with empathy rather mm. than seek to have a strident opinion. Secondly, start from the end of the spectrum of acknowledging you're doing lots of things really well yourself and how do you, you're listening for small improvements. And then the third one is thinking ink. Capture the idea that you have and get it somewhere that you can reflect on it and go back and revisit it. That's fantastic. And they're really helpful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think you've hit a really good point about celebrating the things that we do do. We don't do that often. We're very good at going straight to our negative points or thinking about what we're lacking as opposed to what we already have. And that's yeah, a really good reminder. So when you talk to some of your guests, I wonder if you, in, in your or in the work that you do, what do you think are some of the common characteristics that set people apart from those that go on to become hugely popular, successful, famous in their right. Now, I know I'm going to put those words popular, successful, famous in air quotes, because I know everyone defines that slightly differently. But let's just take the mainstream versions of those, some of the characters, not characteristics, but there's some of the characteristics that you think run through people that have that ability to, to gain that general word of success because we'll get on to different meanings of success really smart question i think there's a number of them that so and the reason i can sort of uh, call these to mind quite readily at the moment is that the book i told you we've been writing it tries Mm. to answer that question of what are the characteristics that people can take away and apply themselves so it's not about starting with a high base of talent it's about Mm. saying wherever i am how do I apply this stuff? I think the first thing I'd say is it starts with accepting a hundred percent responsibility. Mm. What I mean by that is that shit happens, things go wrong, everything. You know, like we were talking uh, before we recorded about what's gone on in your world, <laughs> but you can't get back home and you're stuck there. None of that is your fault, no. but it's your responsibility to make the best of that situation like you are doing. It's about saying, I don't control the pandemic. I don't control which when countries open their borders, but mm. I control how I make the experience of the moment that I'm living in. All of our high performers um, that we've interviewed have demonstrated this aptitude that very quickly they can discern between fault and responsibility. Portion their time, they allocate relatively little time looking at mm. whose fault it was but they accept responsibility to say, right, how do I make the best of it? So that's I, really I think great. that's a really powerful first first step for any of them. Like mm. I'll give you an example from, mm. because it's easy to say that, but uh, we interviewed a guy, a uh, special force, a former special forces soldier called Ant Middleton. He recounted how his whole training when he became a member of the Royal Marines was about, would you want to go into battle with this guy? And he said, and, what they're actually asking is, is it somebody that blames others or is it someone that just makes the best of things? And when he'd left military service, he found himself in trouble where uh, he was he was facing a prison sentence and he had a wife and five, she, his wife and five children at home. But And he was given the opportunity from his solicitor, the way he recounts it, that if he cited PTSD, he'd escape a prison sentence. But his argument was he didn't have PTSD. And he said, I genuinely did do the crime that I'm being accused of. And I don't want to make excuses and find reasons to get out of it. (laughs) I have to live a life of complete responsibility and accept the punishment as a consequence of my actions. Now, that to me was a really stunning example of somebody that it's easy to talk a good game, but he actually faced the consequences in quite a powerful, miscruel way. That lies at the heart of all our high performers, you know, Another example, we interviewed a young boy called Billy Munger that was involved in a car accident and he woke up from a coma five days later and both his legs had been on. It's gone. Yeah, so you go, I, I can't think of almost like a worse dystopian nightmare than what he yeah. described. And yet he was like, it wasn't my fault, but it's my responsibility to live my life on the best terms possible. So, and he exudes optimism and positivity in a way that you would never imagine he's having yeah, all these exactly. hardships. Yeah, exactly. But then when... Yeah. Well then, that's easy to say again. So we go, oh, these people must have something different than us. So people yeah. listen and go, oh, I, I wouldn't do that. Mm. But then if you stop and go, why does he have that? He wasn't born optimistic. He's learned mm. to be that. And the mm. answer is he stopped dwelling on whose fault it was and started mm. focusing on taking complete 100% responsibility to mm. make the best of the situation that he's in. So, I love it. 
yeah, there's something really powerful around that as the first one. Um, second thing is that 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 in terms of motivation, a lot of their drive comes from within, not without. So mm-hmm. some of these people that we're interviewing very rarely talk about money or wealth or the mansions they live in or the cars <laughs> that they drive. It's mm-hmm. about a sense of purpose. It's about mm-hmm. living a life on their terms and being true and authentic to themselves. So mm-hmm. they've almost found that sweet spot where they found something that they're good at, something that rewards them well, but something that they actually just love doing. And in that sweet spot in the middle, that's where they operate at their very best. So what's been interesting is like when we've interviewed guys and we've spoken about failure. Okay. Yeah. Often yeah. Failure comes <laughs> from the fact that they've, they've done something that wasn't in true alignment with the person that they are. Does that make sense? So, yeah, so completely. They out of character. And yeah. That was the moments that they that they regret or when things went wrong for them that they told us, this is what I learned, this is what I did differently on the back of this. So they weren't aligned with their vision and their, and their passion and their mission. The whole Simon Sinek thing of, you know, what is your infinite passion? What is your, yeah, no, I, I think that's that's very interesting. But again, as if almost we're inside my brain, my next <laughs> question was going to be about failure and how you think you could, you address this and maybe you've already answered that a little bit in your, in the work that you do and how do you define it for yourself? Uh, I know you've just explained how some of the guests on your high performance podcast talk about it. Is that a similar way of thinking for you, for you as well? And, and how do you think young people can learn from failure particularly? Yeah. Again, I think answering that question is that success isn't a linear straight line where there's no bumps in the road, where things don't go wrong or cock-ups don't occur. It just doesn't happen. So I think there's a couple of ways in which I process it. One of them is that when it does happen, first of all, start by de- demonstrating kindness to yourself. Mm. So if you've done the best you can and it didn't come off, I think don't – I work quite hard to avoid beating myself up for that and going, oh, you idiot, or oh, why don't you do something better? Because – I've done that a lot over the past and it doesn't help. It just sort of leaves you feeling more beaten down. So I think Mm. if you can honestly just sort of take a knee, a few moments to reflect and go, you know what, I did the best I could, but it wasn't enough. And if you can honestly answer that, I think that that is a start of kindness that then allows you to say, what would I do better next time? Mm -hmm. I had my moment again. Mm. And it's more trying to sort of acquire a little bit of wisdom from every failure that befalls you. I think that's one way that I'd advise any any young person or any person to maybe think about framing it. Another thing, I, though, that you can do is that and um, is that I, I I took an idea from one of our guests, a, a, a Nepalese climber called Nims Perger that we interviewed. So this guy is um, he set the world record of climbing the fourteen highest mountain peaks in the world. Now, just for context, the the previous world record was seven years. He did it in six months. Oh my when we gosh. sort of spoke to him, I think one big thing that he spoke about was this idea of a pre-mortem. And a pre-mortem says before he goes on any expedition, he's got this absolute belief that he'll be successful. But he said he's also got the humility to conduct a pre-mortem that says what could go wrong, where I could fail or that could trip me up. And when he, he then spends some time reflecting on that and says, so how would I handle that should that occur? So he mm. feels then that when he goes, he can commit to being as successful as he can. Even in his unconscious mind, he has the tools to deal with setbacks should they happen. That is absolutely incredible. What an inspiring individual anyway, but that ability to reflect, I don't even know what the right word is for that, but that is like a superpower beyond superpowers, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But then since he shared it, you go, well, we can all do it. Yeah. Like, yeah, we might not have his gifts for climbing mountains, but we could, we're all trying Apply to climb it. our own mountains. Yeah. So we go, right, so when I set off doing a uh, an interview, for example, what would mm. go wrong in this interview? And then you mm. think, right, so should that happen, what am I going to do to respond to that? Right, I know that I can handle the worst. Let's go and commit to doing the best. I know, and everything you just speak about in terms of taking responsibility facing your failures with kindness. Each one of these, for me anyway, really talks to courage. I think it takes courage to be vulnerable and courage to accept things that you've done. And the way you address courage in one of your books, especially using the 
example of Rosa Parks, who's also one of the case studies in Elevate Muses I use in my mentorship program. Oh, you, yeah, it's, it is really nice. Um, you explain courage is vital to break through fear. And fear of failure is obviously one of the things that I think sometimes stops young people from taking risks, in my view, from what I've seen in my teaching experience. But then you go on to share that we don't see more courage because of the fear of being ridiculed by other people, which I think is a really nice innuendo. And I think this is massive in preteen and teen years, because by and large, most teens want to play it safe. They want to believe that if they stick to the safe bit, that they will be able to be accepted that they'll fit in. And I wonder how we might be able to encourage our youngsters and maybe even adults to learn not to hold back from doing what they feel and what they really want to say, i.e. displaying more courage. Yeah. So if you think of how change operates, that um, this is um, the German philosopher from the 18th century, uh, Schopenhauer, speaks about the three <laughs> stages of change. And he says that when you dare to do anything different, so whether this is as a preteen, you think I'm going to do dance lessons and none of my friends mm. do it, or you know, you, uh, as an adult, you think I'm going to try something different, but nobody else that I know does it. The mm. first stage is people laugh, ridicule comes your way. People go, oh, what are you doing mm. that for? You look stupid. What happens if if it goes wrong and people sort of go to that ridicule stage. The mm. second stage of Schopenhauer's um, three stages is that then opposition comes in and people say, well, it'll never last. You won't be really good at it. I've seen mm. this before. It didn't work then. It won't work now. And people mm. give you all the reasons why failure is inevitable. The third stage is where you get to common acceptance, where that once you keep persevering, people go, oh, I always knew you'd be good at that. Recognized it. So those three stages are common. And you think about take the example of Rosa Parks that you mentioned, Ramita. So you think about the civil rights movement, and I know mm. there's still some way to go on this, so I don't wish to be insensitive around it. But when you go back to Montgomery, Alabama in 1954, when Rosa mm. Parks were fronted up and said, Right, I'm gonna defy the color bar, I'm gonna sit in the white mm. only section, mm. people laughed at the almost with incredulity that she was mm. going to do it. This seamstress was daring to take on the authorities with that small gesture of defiance. People laughed at it. Yeah, they and thought then, it was so unbelievable. Yeah, and mm. then with her arrest, it sparked uh, almost like the, uh, the movement got behind her and it became a, in the sort of popular imagination that people sort of thought it, but what you got on the opposite side from the establishment was equal levels of resistance. So Schopenhauer's second stage of opposition. Now, whatever you think about America now, you go to America today and suggest that you would play a colour bar on buses or on public transport, you'd be, re you'd be arrested for racial <laughs> incitement. But we do live in the third stage of change that Rosa Parks sorts of bring about. That these days, it, it's obvious that people should be allowed to go wherever they want, regardless of race, creed or colour. So you start to see how those three stages apply pretty much to any universal change. You think about um, think about sort of mobile phone technology. Now, if you'd have mm. gone back 30 years ago and suggested that people were walking around with mobile phones that were going to be their maps, their diaries, uh, their sort of... Um, yeah, being able to pay yeah, for groceries with your watch. Yeah, yeah you would never... Like people yeah. would have to, that, oh, that yeah. sounds like a space adventure. Then yeah. people would have gone, oh, it never work. But now yeah. today, we've all just adopted that technology and it's obvious sure. that it's not going anywhere. So the three stages apply in, in every context is the point I suppose I'm making. So the first thing that we need to do is we is go back to the points we said in our earlier answers. What are you passionate about? What really matters? Mm. What counts for you? Because sure. if you've got that deep passion, being laughed at gives you uh, some degree of protection when you go out there and, and apply yourself to it. So you don't have to be good at it. You just have to be passionate about your understanding. Why mm. do I want to do this? Mm. And then find people that are in your tribe. Find people mm. that encourage you rather than discourage you. People mm. that try and elevate you rather than drag you down. Because that sense of belonging that you described that we all want to fit in, try and find a tribe that you can mm. belong to that... Mm is out there doing the thing that you're passionate about. 
or, or even just happy to support you like your cheer, I call them your cheerleading squad find Absolutely. the people that want to yeah that want to bring you up but then I suppose that again now we've spoken about two superpowers that are in the elevate mentorship program this is my third one which is resilience do you think it takes character of young people particularly do they have to be particularly resilient to be able to bear that idea that I will be mocked or ridiculed and perhaps made fun of and it's something that I'm quite personally passionate about believing that we can teach it but sometimes I feel we leave it too late and we allow life to teach it to people and some yeah. children or ad- today, you know, adults that are today who've had experiences that shape them as teens possibly might then make them more resilient adults because of the experiences they had when they were younger. But can we do something more actively, proactively as educators, teachers, colleagues, bosses to actively teach resilience? The short answer is yes, we can. So okay. um, I, th- I think we definitely can. Longer answer that I would say, first of all, that when I in the adult world, when I sometimes get calls from organizations that might say, can you help us develop resilience with our staff? The first question I ask is, um, or the first response that I have in my head is that I've never met anyone that needs to be resilient in the face of kindness or mm. decency or understanding. I've met mm. lots of people that need to be resilient when you're surrounded by the opposite of those traits, unkindness, a lack of understanding, people being intolerant, so sometimes it's a culture that we're in that we need to fix the culture, not mm. people against it. So mm. I think that's a question that we need to ask that is resilience a useful skill? Of course it is, but sometimes we need to stop and think about are we, is, do we have a wider issue here with the environment that we're fostering? You've really hit something quite important there, haven't you? It's such an interesting way. I think Adam Grant talks about it and think again. I don't know if you've read that, but it's it's yeah. to look at exactly the same picture that's in front of you and, and turn it on its head and say, what, what are we missing? Which is exactly what you've just said there about resilience. What are we missing? What is it that we yeah. need to use? Yeah. And, and obviously that that's kindness. And that's such a, oh, Damien, thank you so much. That's my fifth superpower. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I feel like I, like I, I've got children similar to yourself, so I've got a son and a daughter. This is one of the things that that when they come home and they might they might say they might tell me something that somebody said something unkind. So I'll give you an example. My son did mm. sports day just before they broke up for the summer holidays, and uh, he was really nervous because he'd been put in a race, and he said, "I think I'm going to come last, Dad." Mm. My answer was. I'm not bothered where you come. The courage is going on that starting line and just doing the best you can. If you come last, if you come first, it's almost irrelevant as long as you mm. come off and say, I've mm. done my absolute best. And he did. And what was interesting was that he, he did come last, like he thought. <laughs> but the guy that won it then chose to mock him and make fun of him in front of another group and sort of make a series of unkind remarks about him. And when my son came home, he was upset about it. And what we tried to get him to understand was, you don't need to be resilient in the face of that. Think about how even winning a race for that child wasn't enough to satisfy him. He felt he had to humiliate somebody in the Mm. process of doing it. You know Mm. what I mean? That he couldn't just win and be dignified or gracious. He had to Mm. then make you feel worse because of it. Trying to get my son to understand that actually you need to be empathetic and you actually need to feel sorry for that guy that even though he's had his victory in the moment actually think about hurt people hurt people is a mm. phrase that we speak about so mm. what's gone on in his life that he would feel a need that he has to drag somebody else down at that moment so i think sometimes just trying to see things from somebody else's perspective get beyond the emotion of feeling anger about it and go why would you feel a need to do that the quicker we can sort of get into that and think a bit like the Adam Grant question, what am I missing here? Mm. Is there something glaringly obvious in that kid's life? But then there you go. That's exactly the point that I think sometimes we don't teach young children. Maybe, and it might be quite hard for a young child to really put themselves in the shoes of somebody who in in theory just got it all. He just got the prize. Yeah. 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 So that's a tough one really, but an amazing how lucky for him to have you as a dad that can talk him through these and show him these examples in such a nice, clear way. There's not enough of that, I think, in my view. 
in schools? Well I, well, I think some of that does. I think that can then help us sort of deal with like the waves of disappointment that are going to crash over all of us at some stage. Mm-hmm. I think another thing, though, in terms of developing res- uh, resilience is sometimes giving children the power to remove yourself from a situation as well and say, mm-hmm. you know what, I, I, this isn't a healthy environment for me. If you're surrounded by an environment where you feel that you, you're going to need to armor plate yourself, maybe it's mm. not the right environment for you. And yeah. Maybe having the courage to say, no, this isn't right, and, and, and feel okay with that rather than I just have to persevere. I think some of the phrases in our, in our culture, like telling people to man up or toughen up or, <laughs> or, or get on with it and that kind of thing is unhealthy because then it leads us to feel that if something isn't right or unhealthy that we have to tolerate it rather than rather than just make healthy choices for our own for our own selves that's such a true point and it kind of leads me on to this next area of pressure and what it does to your mental health and and i suppose having that self-awareness that it's not right for me is being in touch with your mental health and your mental well-being which is as important as as we know as physical health particularly given the last year we've had and, the, and all the new movements that have kind of come out of the world since since the start of last year. Whether the pressures are intrinsic or extrinsic, I wonder how we can talk about it with young people and how we can get the balance better because it it does have an effect on the way we perform. Well, I think, I think in terms of the conversation, the way that I, I would encourage anyone to frame a conversation about pressure is to answer three questions. So pressure often comes from um, one of three areas where either we feel that the demands that are being asked of us are too high, our ability and our resources to cope with it are too low, or the consequences of failure are too steep. So Mm -hmm. in an ideal situation, you want to minimise the demands, to make Mm -hmm. uh, you want to emphasise your abilities and you want to help people to be able to manage the sense of perspective around the consequences of getting it wrong. Mm. When we get those out of kilter, that's where pressure can then become quite suffocating. Take, for example, if you're a child and you're going into an exam, say this, and you feel the pressure of it, the demands, like the subject might be too hard, the questions might be at a level beyond uh, what you've been taught yet, or you don't feel you've grasped the concepts of it. So that's one example where the demands can feel high. Or you might not feel that your skills at answering those questions are good enough yet, your exam technique, your ability to respond and write quickly enough might not feel uh, robust enough. Or the consequences is that you might feel that you're letting your mum and dad down, you're letting mm. your teachers down, so the consequences feel steep. In a situation like that, you would want to make them understand that actually we've taught you the technique in terms of the demands that we're asking you is everything that we've learned in class. Then you want to emphasize their confidence, the things that they're good at, their ability to write quickly or to grasp an idea and think on their feet. So you mm-hmm. want to think of all the times where they've got evidence of that. A bit like the conversation I have with my son. I'm not bothered if you come last. I'm just mm-hmm. bothered that you try your best. So mm-hmm. you try to mi- minimize the consequences of getting it wrong or not succeeding. So they're not worried about that as a consequence. And I think when we can do that, I think that way it allows us to see pressure as a privilege rather than as a punishment. Oh, I love the way you've turned that around for for me too. Goodness me, I've never really thought of the way you could look at pressure as a privilege. I think we often start to keep accumulating these types of demands on ourselves and maybe maybe i don't know people that want to keep achieving just make those that 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 goalpost gets bigger and higher for us to so we once we've achieved a certain level of those points that you mentioned we might add more to it to make it even harder for ourselves to see how long i, I don't know i just wonder if that's something sure. high achievers sometimes culture. i think the mm. culture of like that that it, we've got to go faster we've got to do better we've got to be even stronger and it's constant yeah. rather than say well maybe this level at the moment is fine where we are yeah. And yeah we just need to use that time to pause and build up our sense of our own abilities rather than keep going to the demands bit go to the abilities part of the equation 
Yeah, that's such a good and healthy reminder, I think, for young kids that are trying to stay pretty enough, thin enough, popular enough, sporty enough. All the rest that I keep seeing in, in schools that I think children end up then sort of having anxiety and mental health breakdowns about. I'm not at all saying that there aren't really big concerns out there around mental health and young teens who genuinely suffer. But I think the way you address that second question of being the bit that you reinforce is, is probably a nice way to at least try to combat some of those pressures that young people are putting on themselves. Well, I'll give you an example from the podcast say, uh, interviews that we did uh, with, the, sure. with, the, with the, a really impressive young person Ramita was uh, when we interviewed the athlete Dina Asher-Smith. And um, we spoke to her about one particular race that she'd had at the World Championships in 2019. And she was in the semi-final uh, of the 200 metres and she got a really bad start and she recovered and got through to the final, but only just by the skin of her teeth. And she said that bad start right, really wrecked her confidence. So she was panicking and she was thinking, I'm not fast enough. I'm like a snail. I can't do this. <laughs> and uh, so she went to her coach, a guy called John Blackie, and was saying to him, do we need to do more practice? Do we need to go out there and keep rehearsing the starts? And he went, no, you've done your starts thousands of times and you're very good at your starts. Aww. You don't have to do anything differently. You just have to go out and do what you've done thousands of times. That semi-final was uh, a blip. Wow. You just have to go out and do. And she, she describes it really powerfully that he just reminded her of her abilities you know what I mean? He reinforced what she was good at. He didn't accent, he didn't accentuate the consequences of getting it wrong. He didn't raise the demands that you need to work harder at this. He just reinforced the abilities part of the equation and said, you're fine as you are. Just go and do what you do. And I think sometimes just saying you are enough to any young person, you are enough as you are today, you are enough. And you have to understand what enough means. And that means that, you're attractive enough, you're slim enough, you're good enough, you're clever enough, you're everything, you are enough. Give yourself credit and that. But to do that, we need to have this culture of kindness, which starts oh. with being kind to ourselves. Damien, can you move in with us? <laughs> I, could, I, could, I could listen to you all day. I've got goosebumps with this gorgeous messaging you've got. That's just so lovely. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that so beautifully. I want to talk to you a little bit about enjoying the process and not always the result. Uh, yeah. We talked a little bit about success at the start and what it means and a lot for a lot of particularly high performance people that want to get to a level of performance that is considered successful. And we talk about the journey. We talk about the idea of arriving to this place. But then you arrive at that place, and I'm not sure if ever it's enough, like we just said. And I, I loved listening to the lovely US Open champion, Emma Am I going to say this correctly? Ridikunu. She did this press conference after the match, and what she said so beautifully and articulately was that she has no idea what she's doing tomorrow. She's just soaking it in today, today, right now, this moment. She doesn't know how her life is going to change. She doesn't know what this win really means for her future. But the feeling of winning today was what she was working towards, and she wanted to enjoy that and be in that moment and be mindful of what she'd achieved, which I thought was such a lovely reminder because often we're on this, not, not even talking about US championships, I'm talking about life day to day. We think we've got to get to this, finish line, whatever that finish line is. And then we get there, we don't celebrate it. We're already on to the next thing that we haven't done. So I wondered if you could talk to that a little bit. So what you're describing there, Amita, is, is, is you can break down any process, uh, anything into three stages. Mm -hmm. So if you start with the outcome where you have a reason why you want to do something, so it might be for young people listening to this, it might be um, their exams coming up so you might mm. go right what does success mean for you and you might mm. say uh it's about i want to have a brilliant job and i want mm. to live in a really nice house and i want a really nice car that i want to drive around in and i want to bring up a family in a really nice environment right they're all outcome goals they're mm. outcome goals that speak to your heart that, that make you feel emotional of why you do it once you have that goal of like, and it might be a job of, I want to do a job that I really love, so I might want to work in law and I want to uh, argue cases uh, for underrepresented groups, for example, I'm making this up, something that might be really passionate for you. That's part sure. of the outcome. Sure. 
And then the next thing that you do is you say, right, so what do I need? So this is then you go to the performance goals. So you might say to a young person, well, what are the qualifications that you need to do that? Because now you know where you want to go to. You need to now work out how you're going to get there. So the next stage is the performance goals. And you might say, right, if I'm going to be a lawyer that represents that, I need to be, uh, I need to have uh, my English qualifications and I need to have uh, law at A level and I need to do a law degree. So you have a look at like the measures, the facts that you need. And this is where if the outcome is about emotions, the performance stuff is about the facts. What facts do you need to be able to get a job like that? Where you go to underneath that is you go to the process and you say, a bit like the Emmy Raducanu interview, mm-hmm. what are you doing today that takes you towards those performance goals? Are you working hard enough in your English in the classroom that you're in today? It's going to give you the best chance of getting the qualifications that mm. are going to hit the performance targets. So the idea is that you're, you should always have an alignment between your outcome goal and that's mm. what fires you up to your process goal that you want to be working in the right area. Because mm. a lot of people um, might have an outcome goal, but they're working in, on the wrong things in the process that are not mm-hmm. going to take them any closer to it. So they actually haven't broken it down in the steps that they need to actually achieve what it is that they're feeling. And they're on a route, on a route that isn't really going to get them where they think they are. And hence they might then feel like failures. And the whole cycle is kind of a, a difficult. Yeah, so, yeah. So if we take the example of the Emma Raducanu one that, that you mentioned, her outcome goal, I, I assume, I've never met her, but let's just say her outcome goal is that she wants to inspire the next generation of young women to understand that you can set your mind to do anything. That might be an outcome goal that she's had. The performance goal might be, if I win a, a major tennis tournament, that gives me a platform to go and give that message out to young women. Mm. The process goal might be, I need to train five times a week. Mm. I need to make sure that my physio sessions i turn up on time i might need to make sure that that my nutritional intake is of that of an elite athlete so she focuses on the small details Mm. take her further towards her aim of winning a tennis tournament which in turn gives her a platform to inspire the next generation of young women it's a lovely domino effect isn't it although then i wonder more than anything is is do we then set these people on a hamster wheel where they can't get off because they're, they've achieved that and they need to achieve that and then they need to achieve the next thing? I'm not sure if that's a particular personality trait or not. And I maybe it was in, in Rio Ferdinand's interview when he talks about Sir Alex Ferguson's need to maybe not celebrate the win in front of them to the level that maybe that the players wanted to. I don't know. I, it's just something that I wonder if that gets filtrated there because there's this and, and, you know, to his credit, we are we're a massive United family here. So I would dare to say anything negative about Sir Alex Ferguson. My no, husband would kill me. <laughs> well, I don't think you are, Amita. I think that we hear these stories in our culture of like these relentless champions <clears throat> that never mm. stop and pause and, and sort of take a breath to acknowledge what they've done. I do think that's unhealthy. I do think mm. that when you speak to Rio Ferdinand, his, he, whilst he admires being in that culture, he says... I'm not sure how healthy it was. I think we could have paused a little bit longer without losing that appetite to want to go back and achieve again. So I think sometimes, going back to the earlier answer that I said around, if you think about the demands, abilities, when you pause, if you're doing it intentionally, that's Mm. the moment where you go and reaffirm the abilities that you've had. What was it that got me that success? And you reinforce what you're good at rather than what you're not good at. What will this give me to go and do it again? And and then go again. I think it's it's healthy to take that mm. to, to take that period of reflection. So if mm. you think about like one of the most popular interviews we did in the high performance podcast was with Johnny Wilkinson. Yes. He's another person he that I have written down here. <laughs> yeah, that was amazing. So, yeah, it was. He spoke about what this this sense of having to be perfect, to do the next thing well, move on to the next thing. Cumulative effect of having that mindset. Mm. came at the cost of his own mental health that even when he had injuries he would convince himself that he needed to persevere he needed to go and work even harder to overcome his injury mm. and then it would lead to another injury and then he'd work even harder that would lead to another one so he described a period where he didn't play rugby for two years because mm. 
he was refusing to pause and be kind to himself and reflect on on what he needed to do. So I think there's like we like the narrative of people going back and being relentless for success, and that's great and it plays its part, but we shouldn't underestimate the value of pausing mm. to celebrate, to acknowledge our achievements, reinforce what we're good at, and then decide if we want to go again. And I think that's such a pertinent point, not just for coaches, but for teachers, for employers, for, I think we get caught up in this marking system or ranking system that we keep trying to pit even ourselves against ourselves for. And I think that it's one thing when we feel that we're inferior to all our classmates and our other competitors in a sport, but then to feel like you yourself aren't giving it all and because you're not taking the time to be mindful of being celebratory, like in the Johnny Wilkinson case, on paper, you look at it and you think he couldn't have a single thing that he, he shouldn't be proud of. And yet listening to that interview shed so much light on how hard he was on himself. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what, I think that's an important point that you're making on, on this podcast, Ramita, is that don't let's avoid this narrative trap of thinking that it's about being on that hamster wheel of relentless success and let's occasionally give ourselves a break from it. A few, a couple of other phrases I love from some of your interviews in your books, short-term pain, long-term gain, and then training smart and training hard. I wonder if you could maybe speak to us, not even in just the sport context, but in all contexts around how do you address that? And how do you speak to your young people, your children, your guests about it? First one about long-term, short-term pain, long-term gain. That goes back to the process versus the outcome stuff. So sometimes we need to do things that in the moment we'd rather not do it. But if we've got mm. this outcome goal of we want to make the world a better place or something like that, you go mm. short-term pain. It's almost about that discipline of doing the, the small things well repeatedly. I mean, don't underestimate doing the small things well repeatedly is boring at times as well. And nobody yeah. talks about that. Nobody says, actually, sometimes it's dull, but you have to get through those that, that dull routine. Yeah. Musicians say that sometimes, don't they? Yeah. Like going over and over and over the same set and music, it sometimes looks like, although it's glamorous for everybody else, but musicians themselves will say they are bored. What an amazing sound that is. It looks amazing. But what we don't see is the routine and the discipline of just getting those notes right every time and practicing that relentlessly. So, so that's what I mean by it. Sometimes it can feel painful in the short term, but actually if you've got this outcome and you know where you want to head to, that's what I mean by that point. And then working smart versus working hard. I think this is a point that I see so often that when people say, when things go wrong, I want to work harder. And you go, well, maybe you just need to work smarter. Maybe you worked hard enough. Maybe you need to pause, think, reflect. What would I do differently? How would I do that better? And apply that way of thinking rather than just think it's about throwing more resource at it. So I think it's like the, the, like the metaphor I sometimes use is, back in the days when we could travel. Yeah. <laughs> when you go abroad on holiday and you see somebody trying to communicate with somebody in a foreign language and you say, how do most people deal with that communication breakdown? And the answer is our instinct is to speak louder and, sl- and slower. But you're That's still speaking the same language. And you know, <laughs> you're not becoming more coherent. You're just becoming more obnoxious. Mm, and, and exerting more energy. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Working harder, but yeah. working smarter because you've not found a way of communicating differently. And I think that's the essence of that point. That I think when we take when we take a breath and we have that, and we get into that habit of reflecting. How would I do that differently? Wow. Yeah, that's that's a nice analogy. I like that reminder, Professor Damien. Knowing what you know now, what would you go back and tell yourself as a young teen boy? <laughs> that's mm-hmm. a good question. Um, be kind to yourself. I think I've always been particularly kind to myself. I think even when I was a young boy, some of this stuff I'm sharing, I, I, I didn't apply it to myself. You know, I think a few times, like when I was tired, I thought I, I got into a bit of a narrow, like an internal voice, saying to myself, oh, "Just get on with it, man. I'll, you know, keep going." I think a couple of times that's led me uh, to become quite seriously ill. Mm-hmm. I, I ignored sort of warning signs that I was, I was running myself down or my batteries were running low. Mm. And I had this sort of quite a cruel voice of just keep going, get on with it, stop moaning. Mm. And I think it took me to crash a couple of times before 
where I sort of decided that that needed to change was that I remember when my son was born and somebody saying to me, how would you feel if somebody spoke to your son in the way that you speak to yourself? And it, and it sort of, uh, it, well, it really upset me because I thought I'd hate the idea that somebody would speak in such a cruel, uncaring manner to him. Mm. But then I thought, well, that's what I'm doing to myself. So if you want to role model better behavior, if you want your children to have better ways of coping, I think as a parent, it's incumbent to role model some of those behaviors. So if there was one answer to that, what I would say to my younger self is just speak to yourself with a, a bit more kindness and compassion. Isn't that so important for young people? We talk about self-care, but that it, it's not in the luxury way of self-care, but I think what you've touched on is the essence of what real self-care is, is starting with that positive self-talk, looking at yourself, having that ability to remember that you are a person who deserves to be treated kindly as well. It's so important. Thank you for sharing that. That must have been, that's quite a big one um, to think back on. I appreciate your, your honesty with that. Fine. I think it's a brilliant question. Next question I wanted to ask you is one that I want to, to actually steal right from you and Jay Comfrey, which is the question that you ask every one of your guests is, what are your views on what makes or one achieve a high performance life and or career? So you've probably heard this from so many people. Yeah, I don't yeah, know if sure. you've yeah, summarized sure. it for yourself in your yeah. own terms. <laughs> what we did do in this book, I was describing to you, Ramita, that I think, mm. first of all, the definition of high performance is, say we've done over 80 interviews, we've not had one consistent answer to that yet. Oh, really? Well, high performance is going to be different for everybody. And I, most succinct summary I can give you is, do the best you can with the resources you have in the moment you're in. In any moment... You say, what do I know? What have I got access to? And now I'm going to just do the best I can. Now, you might look back on that time and go, oh, I would have done that differently. It's a different moment. Mm. But in that moment, if you did the best you can, that's all you can ever do. So if that's a child at school and you're saying, right, in this moment, with everything I know, am I doing the best I can to get the, to, to get the best results possible? And mm. that's all you can ever ask of anybody. So I think that's my preferred definition because that'll be unique to everybody. It says, when somebody says, yeah, but they're more talented than me, different resources. They've got access mm. to different, so that's, you don't have that. So don't mm. play yourself against somebody that maybe has different gifts than you. It's mm -hmm. doing the best with your gifts in that particular moment is high yeah. performance. Yeah, I love that. And we didn't actually get onto it, but there is that whole area of comparisonitis. And I think you've just hit that beautifully as well in that answer by saying don't focus on that look at what you've got in front of you and work with what you've got which yeah, yeah. will well, lead well, to your yeah, yeah, yeah. which yeah, then that's... goes back to the first answer of take complete responsibility that yeah. when you take complete responsibility well what they have is not my responsibility and not my focus it's what I have yeah Love that. That's absolutely gorgeous. Now, there is a reason you are worshipped in my home, not just by me, but my husband, my children. We all adore you. And I think you've explained yourself. And your interview today has just been such a joy. If people wanted to get hands on more of your incredible intellect and wonderful, articulately displayed ideas, where would they go to? Where would you direct them? Is it your website, Liquid Thinker, or where, what's yeah, the best so, place? Yeah, yeah. If anybody, I'm conscious, if anyone's um, listening to this and maybe you have some questions or you want to uh, request more information, my website is liquidthinker.com and there's a contact mm -hmm. page there. So uh, it, the emails eventually get passed to me. So uh, I'm happy to help anyone that's been listening. I, I totally attest to that. You're an absolute role model for so many reasons because you live by everything you've just said. I can attest to that personally because that is exactly how Damien and I have been in contact and been able to speak and plan out this interview for everybody's benefit. So thank you, Damien, for, for your no, kindness, fine. for your intellect, for your absolute charm and um, incredible way of expressing yourself. It's just remarkable, really. Oh, well, listen, thank you. Thanks for having me on. And above that, I think what you're trying to do, Ramita, is give people, young people especially, and young girls even more particularly, access to some of this stuff is, uh, is incredible and really inspired. So keep making a difference. Oh, thank you. And when can we expect this book that's coming out with the one that you've done with yeah, Jake so, Humphreys? Uh, yeah. yeah, it comes out. It's called, the, it's called High Performance. And the subtitle is Lessons from the Best on Becoming Your Best. And I think that's the point. Again, it's not about 
reading about these people and going, oh, I wish I had their talent. No, it's about how do you use what they've learned to be the best version of you. And that comes out on the 9th of December. So uh, it's on ebook, uh, hard copy and uh, audio book. Brilliant. I will make sure it's available on the Elevate website as well for anyone who is not familiar with it or not familiar with the podcast. Get out there because that seriously, you and that subtitle itself aligns so beautifully with the Elevate ethos. I think being your best from the best is, is learning from the best is obviously the great. Well, and I think a copy of the book. Don't worry, I'll get you a copy of the book. Can I? Can I get a? Yeah. Can I get a signed? Copy? I think I've already yeah, pre-ordered yeah, it. <laughs> If not, I'll make a to get you in advance. Oh, thank you. I will make sure that I, I'm going to hold you to that, Damien. Thank yeah, you so no much for thank you so much for being on the Elevate podcast. I cannot wait to see what you do next, and I hope we can keep this conversation going. I'd love to. That'd be brilliant. So, thank you for having me again. And that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestipino from the Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.